0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is a longtime fintech friend, Tiffany Montez, and principal analyst at Insider Intelligence. It's way overdue, so welcome to the show, Tiffany.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to see you as always.
0: Yes, and it was so good to catch up with you, even though it was just briefly. um, Recently in San Francisco, it's been three years, so... I like to say two and a half years of COVID black hole. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Um, 2022 flew by. Um, I can't believe that it's been an eventful year, half a year, more than half a year has been gone. Many things have changed. Many things have happened. Um, so let's start with payments is one of the more talked about topics of late, especially by now pay leader. I recently read a figure that says the buy now, pay later market was estimated to be worth $120 billion last year. And that was before more of the, shall we say, movers um, coming into the space, doing more things. has grown, obviously, very significantly in the past few months, even. We've seen different players, right? Klarna, PayPal, Apple, trying to do all kinds of things to get a bigger market share, I have my own personal opinion about this space, but (laughs) I'm curious to hear from your perspective. um, What do you think about Buy Now, now, Pay Later? What do you think about all the different players? What are they doing? And how do you think that ecosystem will change in the short term?
1: Well, your question is quite timely. Uh, We just released a report on Buy Now, Pay Later that talks about what some of the short-term challenges and the long-term changes mean for providers and retailers right now. So when we start to think about buy now, pay later, really we're in the the eye of a perfect storm around this this particular um, category of FinTech. So we know that recent market volatility has decimated evaluations. Um, That's really made investors' funding scarce and it's increasing calls among investors to show a profit. In all of that, we also know that escalating competition, regulatory queries, and also ongoing challenges, not to mention the prospects of a recession that could taper growth and further pressure profits. So when you start to think about the short-term headwinds, um, it's really not for the faint of heart, but the days are still early. Uh, It's still so early for us to be able to know one way or the other where things are going. But we start to think about some of the short-term changes in the industry. You know, we know that industry regulatory scrutiny will dampen growth. And for many buy now, pay later FinTechs, 2021 market evaluations are really ancient history. Um, We expect uh, investors who were once forgiving of losses in their quest for scale will scrutinize spending and even the risk management practices in the hunt uh, for profitability. And that's really gonna put um, competitors under pressure. And when we start thinking about the pressures that will come, um, it really is around new entrants threatening to siphon customers and the dollars from buy now, pay later pure place and depress their margins. We also know that early trailblazers um, that can drive revenue for more than pay in four non-card loans will better withstand the competition. When we start to think about the recession as a whole, it really could lengthen the pathways to profitability. So recession fallout um, will taper the buy now, pay later growth curve, making it harder for some providers to reach scale that's required to show profitability to investors. But there's a silver lining here. We expect that retailers um, to continue to clamor for high quality buy now, pay later solutions that will help forestall customer spending declines and drive customer acquisitions. So we think short-term there will be some impact, but long-term there definitely is a road to profitability for these players.
0: It's very interesting if you start thinking about what they're doing and how it relates to the market. I remember reading some stats a few months ago from both the US and the UK market that talked about consumers using buy now, pay later to pay for daily essentials, to pay for gas, to pay for food. And it's scary to think about, we will need to go to some means like this in order to just get through the day-to-day essentials, if you will. Do you think from a model perspective, I, I recently saw PayPal announce that they will be having a different model where they allow people to pay per month, right? A larger purchases per month. Do you think they will perhaps will see more established players moving towards something like this or letting you do buy now, pay later or, or pay installment uh, for subscription services? Why don't we pay in rent uh, in smaller multiples instead of once a month, why don't we pay for any of the other subscription services? Because it doesn't have to just stop at the one-time retail purchase, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the market is going to somewhat push the notion that you just talked about, moving away from paying for and to paying in um, a longer period of time. So you know, I think one of the things that we can safely say is that we're starting to see um, that buy now, pay later, delinquency rear its ugly head. Um, This year, about 37% of digital buyers in the U.S. uh, will use buy now pay Pay later, many of which we know double dip and take out multiple loans um, at a provider at any given time. And when we start to look at payment or repayment, I should say, more than a third of adult users polled by Credit Karma had missed at least one payment in September of of 2021. So I think we're gonna start to see that a lot of these buy now pay later companies are gonna be dusting off their collection strategy, um, something that they probably have not used much of up until this point and starting to think about um, not only the repayment that may come from the consumers that double dipped with their own firm, but also the consumers that maybe have um, loans at multiple providers and what all of that means because there will come a point where pay for four may not work. And when you start to add delinquency on top of that, it may mean that you have, uh, that you offer consumers different payment structures to be able to get through um, the debt that they have accumulated. And I think a lot of them may have not even known that they've accumulated uh, that much debt, especially when you're in your situation where consumers are using multiple providers. So I think delinquency in in a certain sense will start to reshape the different payment options that providers will offer in the future.
0: You touched on a very important point, which a lot of times people don't appreciate. They kept thinking, well, you know, you go buy something, you pay for it, what's the big deal? You can do that. It doesn't change anything. But when you start thinking about what you just said, people use multiple of these. We don't have the proper tools or resources for consumers to manage that we give them tools to spend but we don't give them tools to manage multiple buy now pay later and as the space evolve i would hope to see more of that responsibility because otherwise all you're doing is sure you're reducing your late fees and all kinds of fees from a traditional incumbent banking perspective but then you're adding other products that are perhaps leading consumers to spending more and not giving them a means to manage it properly
1: but then yeah' giving in those means up front right can you really afford to take on another installment and if you've got two can you afford to take on three and what does your payment schedule look like across all of those because maybe you could afford it um if you've got one dropping off and another one starting but I think Most of the time, consumers are making decisions in that moment and not necessarily um, thinking about what has happened and what they expect to happen financially for them and taking all of that under consideration. And you're absolutely right. It is one of the areas that is lacking in the industry. And it is our responsibility to help people make better financial decisions. Thank you.
0: And so for those of you who are listening, who's thinking about adding more products and services and whatever it is that you're doing for consumers, please think about how you can help them. Spent more responsibility as well. I have no problem with buy up pay later as a payment means, but we need to help consumers as well. So you also talked um, a little bit about just now fintech funding, right? You talked about you know um, how that is also changing, and and I think one of the biggest topics we see of late is how we're seeing more down rounds. Um, not just the United States, it's also globally. There are different areas where startups are reporting is getting harder to get funding. Um, I think some of the funding is going to more of the later stage players. It's a little bit safer bet, shall we say, for VCs compared to early stage. Um, We all know the money is still there. It's not like the money disappeared, but I think um, investors are getting a little bit more cautious in where they spend. Where do you think from an ecosystem perspective, what type of startups would get a better chance of getting traction knowing all of this is going on? Um, Where
1: would you put your bet on? Um, Let me step back for a minute. So I think, you know, you talked about this earlier. So we know that global FinTech funding smashed records last year, more than doubling, um, you know, to reach 131.5 billion. And if you really start to think about that, that's really one in every five venture capital dollars. Um, went to fintech. This year looked like it was gonna start off with a bang, but it's pretty clear that we're headed towards a bust. Uh, Fintech funding, as you highlighted, has dried up. And many of the fintechs that IPO'd in 2021 have seen their valuations halved, if not worse. And we start to think about the three most prominent emerging categories of fintech, neobanks, buy now and pay later, and crypto. Each one of them have suffered. So when we start thinking about the players kind of in those three spaces, the ones that will have a better chance of getting traction to your question are the players that are able to um, prove profitability quickly. Um, And those are the ones that will fare better than the others. And so of the three most profitable FinTechs, as I mentioned earlier, you know, buy now, pay later's future as a mainstream lending product is secure. with a long growth runway, and we've got clamoring retailers, and it also has industry innovation on its side. And I think that sets it apart from the other fintechs like neobanks and crypto. When I start thinking about neobanks and crypto, it's really gonna be about whether or not these players can diversify their revenue streams if they can weather the regulatory scrutiny and even the changes that will come. And we know that when regulation comes, that becomes costly, time consuming and a huge distraction. Um, and while they're doing all of those things, probably the most important thing that they're gonna have to keep in mind is how do you continue to build trust with consumers, especially in an, a time where there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And so, you know, how do you build trust in a digital environment and how do you help um, consumers really be able to use your their products and services? Uh, I'm going to go back to this point again in responsible way in a time where we know that there is a lot in this world that is extremely uncertain.
0: Responsibility, responsibility, and trust. Um, it sounds so different than the wild wild west we have seen for a while and and it's it's a silver lining isn't it because as much as I hate to see some of the downturns we're seeing we've also known for quite a while now that the valuation has gone a little too wild um hopefully this will give us a chance for correction and this will give us a chance to slow down a little bit and think about what exactly we're doing. It's not like you just create an app, throw it out there, and expect to get loads of money. What what are you doing? What are you adding to the space? Um, how are you helping consumers or how are you helping banks to do their work better and more efficiently? Um, so hopefully th- this will this will lead to something better. Um, that's the hope. So while we're on that topic, um, let's talk about new banks. That's one of the three that you just mentioned with buy now, pay later, crypto and new banks. It's really funny looking at how that has changed in some way in the last few years. It's it's not new, right? It's been around for a while now. Although the last two years, many have said because of the fact that we've been isolating, because of the fact that you know, we couldn't have access to a lot of things, doing things the same way we had done, that people are adopting more tools, different tools, especially within financial services. Um, What do you think the next phase will be? Because now it's not just like, okay, you let people do X, Y, Z digitally and you're done. It's, it's way beyond that because there are many players. How do you create something
1: that people will actually want to
0: use and stick around for?
1: Well, if I think about neobanks, you know, it's really, when you think about people that want to to be able to use, think, and stick around, it's really about creating value at the end of the day for a consumer, however that value looks in any of the fintech categories that we're talking about. If I step back and just focus the conversation um, on neobanks, you know, I think what we're going to see in the short term is that neobanks are going to have to move to the black fast. We, we know that. So if you start thinking about the most prominent neobanks in the U.S., Latin America, the U.K., and the continental uh, Europe, all of them experienced massive rounds of funding in 2021. When we think about a neobank strategy, it really has been to dangle expensive lures. In front of consumers, so such as fee-free overdrafts up to $100, and they've been they've had some success in that, right? They've been able to draw in millions of consumers. But now we know that investors um, prize profits over new customers, and neobanks are going to be in a tough space where they're going to need to cut back on the incentives that they get give new consumers. They're going to have to push down their customer service costs. And they're gonna have to aggressively um, cross sell to be able to balance the books. And what we're gonna start to see and what we need as an industry to watch for is that customer acquisition rates and even losses um, to to follow valuations back down to earth and to recalibrate the actual valuation of each one of these funds, or excuse me, fintechs, meaning neobanks based on the actual uh, value of the company. So, if I start thinking about fintech, it really is a crowded space, right, and we know that in a crowded space um, that profitability in this type of environment will be key. So, for those neobanks that aren't able to achieve achieve profitability, it could mean their demise. And when we start looking at neobank success, it really has been driven by offering lavish incentives coupled by what some would call a better digital banking experience, but their costs need to be trimmed back. And it will be interesting to see how successful they are in continuing to drive user growth rates that they've had over the last few years under this context. And really what it's gonna be about for them is aligning their marketing incentives and their onboarding processes to be able to draw in customers um, who can increase their profitability and their short-term growth. And so when you start thinking about the consumer base for neobanks, really the big question in my mind is, can they diversify their product sets to keep um, customers around? So especially as we start thinking about consumers who, who will begin to move into life stages that have more financial complexity, will they stick around? So, you know, according to Cornerstone's research, they found that only half of the top 10 neobanks call their accounts with those fintechs their primary um, checking or savings account relationship. So when you start to think about that number and you start to think about consumers overall and how their financial needs evolve over time, um, will will a, a neobank be able to meet a consumer's needs for financial products, services and advice as they move through different life stages? Or will they move to another provider that has a you know a broader breadth of products that can meet those needs? And so it will be interesting to see, will they be able to diversify their product set to be able to meet um, not only the consumers that they're trying to attract now, but be able to retain them with um, feature sets in, in the future that align with more complex um, products and even financial goals.
0: It's it's funny when you mentioned that point, because I think a lot of us saw this coming, right? When six, seven years ago, when we start seeing more and more FinTech offering services and they pride on, we have a very simple product that does something very simple. And our question at that time was, sure, but millennials still need to grow up eventually. They will eventually need to settle down they will likely eventually need to buy a house, get mortgage and insurance and all of those things. How will you evolve with them? And I remember asking that question even to some quote-unquote more sophisticated fintechs at that time because one of my biggest gripe had always been how do you change with my financial needs, just like what you were talking about. So one of the recent stats I saw was 60% of new caregivers surveyed were actually Gen Z's and millennials. So those are the generation, the newer generation that started moving back with their parents last two years because of pandemic, or they're starting to pay more attention to the fact that their parents need help. They need help to manage their bills or their finances from their adult children, right? So because these children are growing up, just like their parents are getting older. So who is going to be in there to help these adult children help their parents? Is that gonna be the FinTechs? Or is that gonna be the banks that their parents are already banking with and trust? That trust is such a big factor if with this, at this juncture, we're seeing them that they need to start answering to profitability. They need to start thinking about cost trimming. They need to start think about rolling back all these incentives. Do they have enough ammunition to keep these people that have a much bigger needs than when they signed up for service two years ago? So it will be really interesting. Hopefully, again, it's going to be a change for the good, but... um I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch. Do you have a prediction as to what we see divergence between um, where new banks go in the U.S. versus other areas, countries, territories?
1: Yeah, so I think part of it, you know, could be countries, right? Um, it could be. So, you know, I think near term when we start to think about the context of cutting costs. Um, You know, I think they're going to be focused on trying to recalibrate those onboarding processes to be able to attract more profitable customers. I think the second part will be, you know, how do you where who do you serve and where do you serve them? So to your point, you know, will they go after different geographies? And I think geographies is interesting because I I think it's really you're going to have to find a market where there really is an unmet need um, if you want to drive true profitability. And then I think um, the third part that will be interesting for neobanks is really trying to find um, new sources of revenue or even new business models. And when I start thinking about new business models and I start thinking about um, what neobanks do under the context of super apps, super apps might actually give them a lifeline. And there are many of them that are pursuing um, that. And so when I think about super apps, it's more along the lines of, can you create a subscription Service revenue model for yourself, where you give consumers access to different components of finances and be able to charge for that. So, like one example, again, this is an example, hypothetical. This is Tiffany making up an example. You know, what if you gave consumers the ability to plan for, um, prepare, and file taxes, and you charged, uh, you know, income or you charged a a fee to be able to use that module um, for, you know. For your company, is there a whole other model that you could open up there under the context of uh, finding financing and buying a home? Could you create a model there and subscription revenue to follow that? So, you know, I think that when you start thinking about some of the neobanks and their pursuit of a super app strategy, I wonder is if that is not the lifeline for for many of them, and will that give them uh, the ability to be able to diversify their revenue stream? Um, and also be able to keep the consumers, you know, as we talked about earlier, that are going to have um, more complex financial needs. Is that a way to be able to step in and help them in a way that might be different um, than incumbent banks do? I
0: like your um hypothetical example of subscription that reminds me of the counselors services, a lot of healthcare providers have moved to in the last few years, instead of charging a la carte, you can get a subscription a month, and you can reach them, you get different level of service. I I think that is a very interesting way for them to get revenue. And it seems like a lot more providers are moving towards that, at least in the healthcare space. So it will be interesting to see if we can do this something similar. Within financial services because we have needs we we don't lack needs. I think we lack is the service that can meet our needs and truly meet our needs. um so while we were in the topic of hypothetical what <laughs> Tiffany um what does Tiffany thinks some of the things that you would like to see happen in in our space? what are some of the gaps that had not been well addressed that Hopefully, with all of the changes that we have going on that we might
1: be able to do better and close, gosh, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear me say this because uh, you know me pretty well you know i am I am waiting I've been waiting <laughs> for someone to close the gap on financial wellness um you know if I start thinking about um unserved and underserved, I think you know there's a lot of movement on providing accessibility um to financial products and services, but I think it's more than just accessibility. It's about financial empowerment. And what I'm really hoping to see in this type of environment, and you start thinking about creating a unique competitive advantage, is in this kind of environment where there is a lot of uncertainty, that we know that consumers may, you know, experience financial hardship. Is this the moment um, that financial institutions, and I'll just say this broadly, meaning incumbent banks and fintechs? really begin to embrace empowering um, consumers through financial wellness and really helping we talked about this earlier, helping people understand, can you afford credit um, and understand the relationship between how and where you're spending money and how that impacts your ability to pay your debt, which impacts your ability to save, and all of those things, um, you know, equal your overall financial health. And so can we really get to a space that we move away from just making consumers aware? Of their finances and giving them financial insight, driving them to you know what they should be doing with that insight, and then continuing to engage them to move them forward through um, you know lots of different life stages in their life that all have different levels of financial complexity.
0: I I I love that, and yes, you're right. I kind of was hoping you would say that because that's, that's, what my um, you know, my, my view of helping consumers get to better financial standing doesn't mean that just combine all their loans and give them another loan. We need to do more than that. Um, that is not cutting it. So hopefully, hopefully, and I, I see, I see hope in some of the startups I've seen the past 12 months that help people literally digging into their expenses and coming up with ways to help them cut them. Um, there are FinTech founders that are reaching to the younger, much, much younger generation, because we all know it starts from when we we're little, not when you're already 30, 40, um, to help introduce them to the concept of money. Because I always thought, you know, when that my, I would say I've been lucky in the sense my parents always talk about a little bits and pieces in that, but my real lesson was my first week in college, when I saw a, a nice table with all kinds of, you know, the, the water bottles, t-shirts and all of that. Hey, sign up for a credit card. It's a zero dollars and, you know, all kinds of perks incentives, right? We talk about incentives. And before I know it, I had a crash course and that was not a good way to understand well all the fees and the compound interest and all of the everything that is associated with signing up for a credit card that was way too easy to get credit um, that was my first crash course and luckily i had my parents there with me as i fell straight into the trap but think about all the other people that didn't and it didn't have to be this way right as easy as we dole out credit to to young people, we need to actually help them understand what they're getting themselves into. Uh, yeah. And as and a continue thing. So I, I hope that, yes, I agree, we can do better. Um, before, we, before we close, before I let you go, I can keep talking to you forever. Um, if we were to look back at the last year, um, well, last 12 months, if you will, What caught you by surprise? Anything caught you by surprise that you thought, oh geez, I didn't think that was gonna happen. And I want a crystal ball. What is your one prediction that you think is gonna happen?
1: Gosh, Um, if I think about sort of what I'm surprised about um, is probably just consumers willingness to engage with brands in a digital environment. I mean, I think the pandemic pushed a lot of that. I think behavior has changed in a lot of ways and you know i think on the other end of that it really is up to financial institutions to really embrace that change and to think about how do we serve customers in a digital environment and reduce the reliance on a branch network or you know actual live person help and even when i think about the context of a of a branch and wanting to talk to someone you know everyone will tell you that they the consumers prefer to use a branch because They trust humans. I think that notion of trust is is not necessarily 100% accurate. I think that they use humans because they want someone to be accountable um, for what they are coming to you for. They want accountability. They want to know, Theo, you told me you were going to do this. Are you going to do it? Um, And when you start thinking about it under the context of accountability, it's really about transparency. Right. And how do you build digital solutions that are transparent so that consumers always know um, that the thing that they've asked you to do is being taken care of? Um, So it's been interesting over the last year to watch some institutions really embrace. um, How do you stand up a virtual branch and maybe it's still face to face or some hybrid combination, but how do you start thinking much differently about the consumer engagement model? Um, under the context of allowing consumers to interact with you in the way that they want to interact with you. If I start thinking about the next 12 months, um, gosh. So I think, you know, one thing that we'll start to see is that big tech will push further into financial services through partnerships and pure play. So if you start thinking about some of the big um, big tech players, the big, big tech, did you like that? Um, Apple, Google, and Microsoft combined are, you know, over $500 in cash investments that really puts them in a strong position to build out financial services capabilities such as lending, especially as borrowing costs rise. We've seen Apple lean further into that pure play um, approach with its push into buy now, pay later, um, which the company made without its partner um, for Apple Card, Goldman Sachs. So, in the coming years, we really anticipate that other large technology firms strategies will turn to partnerships and pure play models for financial services, um, you know much how the smartphone space has shaken out. And when you start thinking about valuations falling and and other things, is there an opportunity for big tech firms to achieve scale through acquisitions? The second thing that I think will be interesting over the next um, nine to 12 months is that regulation or regulators will really step in to start to even the playing field between banks and non-banks so we know that fintechs have enjoyed a privileged position relative to banks and as they're sat, but as they're saddled with significantly less regulation but as neobanks buy now pay later crypto companies credit monitoring firms brokerages um, all of those um, customers start to get burned in this kind of environment. It will really start to spur um, the CFPB to take action. And that will mean that the government will likely take greater steps to regulate fintech firms to a similar degree as banks. And that will really reshape everything from marketing um, to operating models. And so, you know, I think there is a lot going on in the industry. And I think one of the things that I would encourage um, the listeners today is that, you know, insider intelligence covers the biggest news, um, events and trends to tell um, our clients and even subscribers to our, our innovation newsletter, what happened, why it matters and what's happening or what we expect next in the banking and payments industry. So, you know, there there is a lot of movement right now. I, I'd like to say, you know, even when you talk about any of these topics that You know, everything changes every day, but in certain cases, everything changes every hour. And so it is a good resource for understanding some of the latest breaking news and what that means for the industry.
0: So where can we find more,
1: Tiffany? You can find more on our site. If you just go and um, there's an option on insiderintelligence.com, there's an option to subscribe to um, the briefings. Perfect.
0: Thank you. And I would add, too, um, I am a big fan of a lot of the charts that you guys send out. It's been very informative because, like you say, the space change so fast. And, you know, even with all of the newsletters and everything, I am having a hard time keeping up on keeping straight on what is going on. What? Cause you blink and something else changed. So <laughs> it's been, um, it's been a wonderful resource for me. I do appreciate it. And you've been a wonderful friend and it was great to chat with you at least a little bit more than how we were able to last time, uh, face to face. So hopefully as we slowly get back to normal whatever normal is um that you know we'll keep going and uh, i do hope that everything that has happened in our industry is going to be able to put us on a better path forward for consumers um and for everyone else who is in the um ecosystem
1: yeah absolutely it is always a pleasure to see you it was so great to see you at finnovate and i hope to uh run into you again in person at a conference later in the year so thank you again i miss
0: those i miss i miss that every time when when i was out i always used to see you and just do quick catch up so i miss those moments so but thank you so much for joining us today tiffany and for for the rest of our listeners thank you for joining us for another episode of one vision we will talk to you all next week